0: All right. Road trips. Did you see yourself on the video? If you're married, did you see your spouse on the video? <laughs> okay, and for gender equality, I have to admit, in our family, I'm the one who can't decide where we want to eat because I'm always afraid as soon as I pick, the next exit's going to have something better, right? Um we're talking about road trips. Last week I shared a little bit about the road trip we took to Arizona. Um but there's, a very, there's another memorable road trip in our family history. <clears throat> in 2010, our son was graduating from college, and we wanted to take a trip to sort of celebrate and commemorate that. And we have family in Washington, D.C., so we thought it'd be great. We could fly to D.C., stay with them, see the sights. And then back in 2010, there were several new baseball parks on the East Coast that had been opened. so we were going to drive to various ballparks and see games there. And we were excited about that. We had made plans... And I think that it's actually the night we had finally made plans and gone over it with our son. Our son calls home and my wife picks up the phone and he says, um, hey, about this trip, uh, can Devin come? Now, Devin was his girlfriend, is now our daughter-in-law, and uh, they had only been dating about nine months. And so Lisa says, well, wow, that would um, it'd really change the dynamics and the logistics of the trip. We'd probably have to get, we would have to get two hotel rooms. She'd have to stay with my wife, she said, that may feel, make her feel uncomfortable. I said, you know, his more expense, but, you know, we might do that, you know, like if you're going to, if you're engaged, you're going to get married or something like that, to which my son said, oh, that's pretty much a done deal. That's how we found out that they had were contemplating getting married. So we did, uh, we were thrilled, by the way, I had taught Devin in junior high, so I loved her already as a daughter, we did. And, but Lisa and I were thinking, well, you know, when we do this trip, what can, if they're going to get married soon, what should we do? And so what we did was after we left D.C., after staying with family, we had brought all the notes that we have from our premarital and pre-engagement counseling that we do here at the church. And so uh, they're in a backpack, and Lisa turned to Aaron and says, hey, Aaron, hand me that backpack. I engaged all the power locks, all the power windows. <laughs> And we then went through on this road trip, the biblical role of a husband, the biblical role of a wife, conflict, forgiveness, communication, because our thinking was if they were going to get married, they needed biblical truth in the very near future. It was going to be important that they had that biblical truth. And today we're going to see on the road trip that Jesus and the disciples are taking back and forth at, during Holy Week between Bethany and Jerusalem, that Jesus determines that the disciples need biblical truth, and that it's biblical truth that they are going to need uh, far more imminently than even our son and daughter needed for uh, premarital counseling. So if you have your scriptures, go ahead and open to Mark chapter 11. If you remember last week as we started um, looking at these road trips back and forth between Bethany and Jerusalem, that on Tuesday morning, Jesus had seen a fig tree with leaves but no fruit, and he had cursed that fig tree because it didn't have any fruit. They had gone on into Jerusalem later on Tuesday, and Jesus cleared the temple. Uh, Doug will talk about that next week. They They left late at night. And so the tree probably wasn't visible. On Wednesday morning then, they're coming back. Peter sees the fig tree, points it out uh, that the fig tree that Jesus has cursed is dead, withered from the roots up instantly. And we talked about the fact that that miracle, a curse of warning, was a warning to us that as Christ followers, we, w- we don't want to just have the leaves. We want fruit. We don't want to be hypocrites. And Jesus greatly desires that fruit in our lives. But today we see that this road trip, that miracle Jesus uses for a very important additional teaching as well. So we're going to pick up in verse 20. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. So, while Jesus' miracle was a miracle of judgment, his teaching in response to that miracle was totally different. 24 hours after Jesus has actually cursed the tree, Peter notices this. And I'm trying to picture what was happening Remember, we have at least 13 of them, maybe more traveling with them back and forth. And so I wonder if the next day when they're walking, does Peter get out ahead of them and see the fig tree and say, Rabbi, that tree that you cursed is dead? And then Jesus responds, or maybe they're walking and they're just gonna walk past it. And as they do it, it catches Peter's eye and he goes, Jesus, that tree that you cursed is dead. And so Peter points it out, but then Jesus, it says, he tells them all, have faith in God. And if you think about this, if you were the one saying, hey, look, a tree is, is dead, and Jesus says, have faith in God, would you wonder, where is Jesus going with this? Is he saying, don't worry, I'm going to find you a fig tree with figs, we're going to have food to eat. Or where's he going? It seems like sort of a 90-degree turn. But I think we need to consider the historical uh, timeline here. This is probably Wednesday morning. Thursday night will be the Passover meal. Friday will be the crucifixion. So in about 48 hours, the disciples will no longer be in the presence of Jesus. And so what we have here in this part of the road trip is a lesson on prayer. A lesson on prayer. Why now? Well, for approximately three, three and a half years, the disciples had lived in the very presence of Jesus, right? Anytime they needed something, they said, Jesus, we need food. Jesus, we need protection. Hey, Jesus, what do we do now for wisdom? They went to him. Now, Jews, the Jewish uh, culture, they prayed regularly. And the disciples probably prayed regularly before they became followers of Jesus, But if you look at the Gospels, you don't see much about the disciples praying. We see Jesus stepping away to pray. There is an account where Jesus teaches them to pray. But we don't see much where the disciples are praying. Why do you think that is? If you're you're thinking about it. Why do we not see much about about the disciples praying? If you think about it, why go and say... Hey, I'm going to go over here and pray to an unseen father when I got Jesus right here, right? They've been in the very presence of Jesus. Unlike us, all we've we've ever known as far as lifting our desires to the Lord is prayer. Prayer for salvation, pray for the salvation of others, praying for healing, for deliverance from sin, for wisdom. That's all we've known. But for the disciples, they were getting ready to be in a situation where they're gonna go from being in the very presence of Jesus and verbally speaking to Jesus in the flesh to becoming like us and having to be dependent on prayer. Jesus knew that, and so on, on this road trip, he says, I need to give them biblical truth that they are gonna need in the very near future. And so what we have here really is a, uh, a lesson on prayer. Peter remembers what God, what Jesus had done when he cursed the tree. He was reminded of that. And Jesus points out, have faith in God saying, you know what? The same power that cursed that tree is going to be available to you. And so we have from this, a lesson on effective prayer that is just as important to us today. And so that's what I want us to spend time on, is looking at really five elements we see from this passage on effective prayer. And the first one we see is actually before Jesus actually speaks, and that is we need to remember. We need to be reminded. It says Peter was reminded of what Jesus had done. We pray now because of past power displays. We pray because we know what God has done in our lives. And so we are to, we should remember, we should be reminded. In fact, uh, we see that before the Israelites entered into the promised land in the Old Testament, God was aware that they would encounter nations and people groups who were going to try to kill them, to mislead them. And he told the Israelites 15 times to remember so what do you think they would be remembering as they went into the promised land? Well, they would remember that God delivered them from Egypt. He would remember that uh, they were protected from the Passover angel on the night of Passover when the firstborn were killed. He, they would remember that they walked through the Red Sea on dry land while Pharaoh's army was in swamp. They would remember that daily manna was provided to them. They would remember that water was provided from a rock. Remember, remember, remember uh, they were commanded and encouraged with. And so for effective prayer, we need to be mindful. We need to remember what God has done. Now, I am a very, I'm a history geek. I love history. Uh, when we're on road trips and we go to a museum Uh, my family gets very nervous because if there's a plaque, I'm going to read it. I mean, uh, it goes to the Baseball Hall of Fame, the World War II Museum. I mean, Lisa actually takes books when we go to museums because she'll find a bench and read because I'm in there forever. But if you're a history person, you have to be careful. Sometimes you can be nostalgic, right, and think, oh, the good old days that were better then, and you can be tempted to be discontent. But actually, if you look back and you remember what God has done and you can see his providence and how he's brought you to where you are today, or you see the providence in our country or other circumstances, it will encourage you to pray. Maybe if you're a new believer, um, you may think you're at a, at a bit of a disadvantage because you haven't been as mindful of how God has been working in your life. But I would encourage you if you're a relatively new believer during your quiet time, maybe this week, is just sort of think back on your life and how God has worked to bring you to where you are today. And for all of us, I think we need to be mindful of what God has done in our lives and ask yourselves, could you you give three or four examples of God's providence and blessing in your life if someone walked up to you in the courtyard today and asked you? Could you do that? Um, I think a good spiritual discipline is to keep a thankful journal. Now, guys, we don't do journals, right? So call it a list, right? Just call it a list. (laughs) And the good news is now with our phones, with note sections, we don't even have to carry around a pen, paper, anything like that. If you are struck with a thought about God's provision, just take it out, dictate it into that note section. Pretty soon you've got a note of the goodness and God's provision, all right? And so then you can pull it out. Rather than going through the light on orange, you could actually stop and say, okay, I'm gonna use these 15, 30 seconds to review my thankful list. And that helps us to remember to pray. And as we remember God's goodness, I think we wanna consider Paul's uh, teaching in Romans 8, 32. Paul uses the teaching... uh, analogy or example of from the greater to the lesser in Romans eight thirty two He says, he, God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Paul's point is God made the ultimate sacrifice for us. Okay. He didn't, with, he didn't even withhold his own son. So if I remember that, how can I not help but think in this circumstance, God's going to give me what I need, what is best for my, for my, um, internal soul and for eternal consequences. God's not going to give his son and then withhold something lesser. So we're mindful of that. We would then be encouraged to pray. Well, the first words Jesus say in this though, is to then have faith in God, have faith in God. Now have faith in God doesn't mean I have faith that God's going to do whatever I put on my wish list. Having faith in God means that we trust his character. We trust his attributes. We trust his plan and that we trust that he's always going to act consistent with that character and those attributes. Okay. So that requires, I don't want to freak anybody out, but that requires you to have good theology. So don't let that word scare you. It just means I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to study and learn. So I know the character of God. I know his purposes from the scripture. And then I know he's going to act consistently with that character and those attributes. Silly example. So you get what I mean. Let's say growing up, you had a, a wonderful grandmother. I sure did. But let's say you're going to grandma's house for Christmas and you know grandma's cooking. And if grandma's a good cook, for my, in my case, I knew it was going to be good. Maybe you're thinking the same thing. For me, it was, it was my grandmother's mac and cheese, still the best I've ever had. So I had faith that when I got there, it was going to be a good meal. After the meal, we're going to open presents and I know grandma was probably going to buy me some clothes. Grandma doesn't know what's cool, okay? And I know when that box is open, it's going to be, you know, Grandma's going to act consistent with her character and her attributes, and that is not to be able to pick out clothes. But we, we have faith when we know the character, we know the attributes, and we know that God is going to act consistently with that character. So faith in God requires good theology and that we trust God his plan, and his purposes. When we trust God, we recognize, God, in my limited thought, I think I know of a way that would work out best, but I know your ways better. In fact, uh, I would only get in the way. So I really, I may pray something specifically, but I first and foremost want what you have planned to take place because I trust you and your power and your plans more than my limited understanding. And in fact, we, we see this sort of t- we see this thought taught us in scripture, sort of from two different sides of a coin. in first John five: four, John tells us, this is the confidence we have before him that if we ask anything according to His will, he hears us. Amen. So when we say, "God, I want your will to be done in this," we know." that based upon what your character, your goodness, we know that you want to be glorified and you want to redeem the lost. We know that's going to happen. So we know our prayers and his will, he will hear us. Flip side is when we then enter into prayer, we try, we engage and there are things that in our mind make sense and we pray them, but we know that ultimately his will overarches that. And James tells us that it's, we can pray for one way, but we have to be careful and be confident saying, God, if your will is something else, I'm good with that. James four thirteen through 15 says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. True statement? Absolutely. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. So we want God's will to be done, and we have to recognize that his will will be done. But it will always be consistent with his character and his purposes and his plan. And so to have that faith, we have to have good theology. We have to know what that character, what those plans are. So praying in God's will, we just have to admit, right? At some point, that sounds a little churchy, right? And if it's his will, and, but we have, to re, we have to come to the point that we agree, I trust your character, you will, your character never changes, and your plans are perfect, even when I don't understand them. And we have to sort of work through, maybe you're like me, sort of that, well, if it's God's will, we sort of think that that sort of gives God an out, right? You know, uh, I've been praying hard for this. It didn't happen. But I know if I talk to a pastor or Christian friend, they're just going to say, well, that wasn't God's will. And we're tempted to think, well, that's just code for God can't work or God doesn't care. But that's not true. When we have faith in God, again, we we can pray specifically that we trust that the way he works is better, Great example of this in the New Testament in the life of Paul. Paul, late in his life, wanted to go to Rome to preach the gospel. Paul's one of the greatest missionaries we see in the, in the, in the scriptures. Let's say we were Paul's sending team and we're sending Paul to Rome to preach the gospel. Rome has, is a huge city. Big hub of an empire. There are some new believers there, but still a lot of unreached people. If we were praying and lifting up prayers before Paul left, what are some of the things we would be praying for for Paul? You can talk now. What are some of the things you'd pray for? Protection. Fruitfulness. May many people hear. May many people receive the gospel. What? What? Prayer that he doesn't get arrested, absolutely. Well, (laughs) Paul gets arrested. Spends a lot of time in jail. And so, if you're sitting there part of his prayer team going, God, Paul's one of the best effective communicators we have, and he's arrested. And then we get a letter from Paul where he says, Go back. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well-known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So Paul went. People probably prayed in their own wisdom, thinking that makes sense. I mean, it wasn't unbiblical to pray that you go be protected, not be arrested. But God's greater plan was, because of the, his being arrested in prison under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes a letter to the Philippians, which is, one of the, for me, one of the most encouraging books in the New Testament. Other people, because Paul is now taken away, have to step up. And we see a multiplication of leaders that might not have occurred had Paul not been in prison. And, and this part is extra biblical, but it's from the history Uh, from historical writings when the Roman Empire expanded the Praetorian Guard would have gone with the expansion and they knew the gospel and took it to new unreached lands. God's plan bigger than ours far more fruitful than we probably would have prayed as part of the sending team now I I just passed through some uh, verses because I wanted to do this uh, after it occurred to me I wanted to do it in a different order I frequently use Romans 8, 28, and 29 when we have faith in God in Romans 8, so I'm going to go backwards on the slide, all right? So, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. This is where our faith in God now becomes personal when we're praying, It says, God causes all things to work together for good. Does it say all things are good? No. But God is causing all things to work together for good for those who love Jesus. And God, as creator, gets to define good. And he's defined good as conforming us, brothers and sisters in Christ, to be more like Jesus. So when we have faith in God, we believe that in this circumstance, God... Your will is that we become more like Jesus. And so that becomes more important to me than any particular outcome. Because I have faith, God. I don't know everything. I'm not your counselor. But I know you've said it's best for me to become more like Jesus. And so that's first and foremost what I want. That, that can be a test of faith. Because I know there are some things It's like, I just want out from under this trial. I don't want to persevere. Actually, God, if going through this trial makes me more like Christ, I have to go through the trial. I'm good where I am. But faith in God says, no, your plan is better and me becoming more like Christ is best. So I have faith in you. So we have to remember what God has done and then have faith in his character, his attributes, and his plan, and then Jesus says, ask, ask. It's a very practical component of prayer, right? Ask. Mark eleven twenty four 24 in our passage today says, therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. He makes it very personal. Jesus is saying, I say to you, you, Ask, ask. It's, it's strange. Many times I talk, maybe even in counseling, I'm talking to people and they have circumstances. They want reconciliation. They want circumstances to change. And so I'll talk to them about their prayer life and they haven't asked. They haven't prayed about it. You know, and we, now we would never do that, right? It's like, ask. And James, in the book of James chapter four, James points out that sometimes we're fighting and quarreling over things, things that may even look biblical and they don't come about because we don't ask. It says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war on your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. See, we had this is point two and three combined right here. First of all, we don't ask. Or maybe we do ask, but it's for selfish motives. It's not for your plans to come to fruition, God. It's for my ease of life, my comfort. So right here, our prayers are not effective because we either don't ask or we ask for the wrong motives. So we are to have faith in God and ask. Now, I have, to, I have to share, uh, personally, this was the area, actually, I needed to grow in, and I have grown significantly in this, but uh, one of the reasons is I, was, I am so comfortable and uh, solid in my belief of God's sovereignty, that God is in total control of everything. Nothing happens unless He decrees it or allows it, and God knows what's going to happen today, tomorrow, and the next day. And so, sometimes I'm thinking... Well, why pray? God's got this. But can we just acknowledge that there are some biblical truths equally true that in our finite minds it's sometimes hard to reconcile? A sovereign God, nothing happens outside of His sovereign will, yet God's revealed will, His directive will to you and me says pray. So, I'm not going to stand up here and say, I can totally reconcile that with you. John Piper once made a statement that helped, though. He says, God is sovereign not only over the ends, but the means. He moves his people to pray, and that reconciles with the end. So, what are some of the benefits, though, when we literally ask the Lord? I think first thing is, we are mindful of the need. When we pray, we become mindful of the need. If someone walked up to you and said, hey, how can I pray for you today? You might have to stop and say, well, let me see. And you become mindful. This is an area where I am dependent. Or if you ask someone else, how can I pray for you? You become mindful of their need. So asking makes us mindful and we're mindful. We recognize our dependence. But it also then makes us more mindful of God's response when we start praying, we're on the lookout for the answer. Uh, Lisa and I have for many, many years now, we do our quiet time in the morning. And at the end, we pray together. Uh, we have people that uh, sort of list of people we pray for. And at the end of our prayer, we swap requests, you know, um, how can I pray for you today? Uh, how, and I ask, this is how she can pray for me. And we write it down. Lisa has, she has a journal. I have a list <laughs> on my tablet, but like It's amazing. the next day when I look back on what was on the list the day before we're already mindful of how God has worked just in that 24 hour period and as we scroll up we become mindful God may have responded in the same way but we wouldn't have been aware of it and that ties back into point one when we're mindful and we see God answering we become we acknowledge our dependence we pray frequently and that also gives us courage to share our faithful God with other people so we asked and then Jesus says when you ask believe believe our passage says whoever says to this mountain be moved to the sea believe and do not doubt and it will be done so yes I do believe the creator God who spoke this world into existence can move a mountain into the sea no doubt I don't think that's the point Jesus was making here it was actually an analogy and there was a figure of speech that you see in Jewish literature at the times that referred to rabbis as problem solvers as movers of mountains and so I think Jesus using this analogy said basically believe and not doubt because if you doubt who are you doubting God, you're doubting God. So he's saying, do not doubt, believe, remember that God has all the power. Now, having faith in God and believing are similar, but I believe there are many circumstances where belief on our part requires us to act and think differently. I believe an airplane will fly. So I get on the airplane. I believe that The only way that I'll have eternal relationship with God the Father or God in heaven is through Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I believe that all my eggs are in that basket. I'm not hedging my bets. I'm not studying other religions. I believe Jesus Christ is the only way, and all my eggs are in that basket. I believe I act differently. So Jesus says ask and believe. It means our behavior should evidence that belief. A lot of times, uh, and we can all be guilty of this, we want to say, God, as soon as I see you work, I'll act, I'll obey. But we are to believe trusting that God will act. We talked about that last week. You know, like the, the, when the Israelites were going into, crossing the Jordan and going into the promised land, the priests were to step into the Jordan first and then the water was going to be backed up so they could cross. They stepped. They believed. And as we seek to believe, ask and believe, I think we need to be very mindful that when we ask and believe, God is going to prompt us and we need to be on the lookout of being the answer to our own prayer request. Or in other words, God's the answer, but God's going to use us to be the answer to our prayer request. Monumental moment in my life uh, this point came home to me. 1996 Bible Study Fellowship, the Men's Bible Study Fellowship, is just starting in Jacksonville, and uh, I started going at the encouragement of my wife. I think all men are in BSF because of their wives. I'm not sure, but going to BSF, loved it, and they had it. They had just started. A a children's program for grades one through 12. I had a third grader at the time, but they only had enough volunteers for first and second grade. They needed one more volunteer before they could open it up to third graders. And I definitely wanted my son to be able to participate so we could be studying the same scriptures. And I'd check every week. No, no, we need one more volunteer. And I remember sitting in, was, we're getting ready to do our singing before our big group time, literally sitting out there where you are, Looking around, saying, I can't believe out of 150 men, one of them will not volunteer to lead the children. Well, that night, we're studying history of Israel and the minor prophets. We're in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, and Nehemiah, who was a Jew taken into exile, he's the cupbearer for the king. And if you're before the king, you're not supposed to be sad. But he had a sad face because he had gotten distressing news about Jerusalem, how it laid in ruins And the king said, why so sad? And he goes, king, how can I help not being sad when the city of my forefathers lies in ruins? And the king said, well, what would you have me do about it? And Nehemiah said, after praying to God, will you send me to rebuild the city? And the teaching leader at BSF then said, men, have you thought that God wants you to be the answer to your prayer request? Instantly, says, I do not like where this is going. (laughs) Seriously. My chest tightened. I said, teaching first, second, or third graders every week, having my BSF prepared and a lesson done in five days rather than seven days. I, I, I can't, but every reason was <laughs> uh, fleshly. And I remember, I, I didn't even make it all the way home. I called Lisa and I says, I think I'm supposed to be a children's leader. And so I then taught Children worked in the children's program for 10 years, but it says be, God was saying, be an answer to your prayer request. Do you want lost people to come to know the Lord? Is that Do you pray for lost people to know Jesus? Are you asking God to use you for that to happen? Well, passage takes a unique twist there. We get to verse 25, and then at this point, Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. And so, you know, is Jesus, is Jesus sort of giving them a second golden nugget, or is he still talking about the same thing? I think when we look at the context, we have to recognize that part of effective prayer is we need to forgive and repent. Forgive and repent. Now, here's the verse that I just read. When you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. I use this verse a lot in counseling with people who are struggling with bitterness. There's a command here while you stand praying. And I say, How often does God expect you to pray? Pray without ceasing daily. And so you should be forgiving and uh, extending grace and mercy and trusting God with the offender every day. But I think there's a broader context here. If you withhold forgiveness, are you in sin? Yes. Yes. It's a trick question. I don't know because I'm holding on to bitterness somewhere. We are commanded to forgive. We can rationalize. They'll do it again. They've done it, you know, all these times. I'll enable them. We are commanded to forgive. And when we don't forgive, we're in unrepentant sin. And what does unrepentant sin do to our relationship with the Father? It hinders that relationship. Now, I'm talking about believers. We've been declared not guilty if we place faith in christ so we've received judicial forgiveness the gavel has come down we are declared not guilty we are now a child with a heavenly father what happens if a child disobeys their father and just refuses to confess and repent Our, our, our father is per heavenly father is perfect and we're not perfect but even then we still love that child we're not moving away from them but when we sin against the, our Heavenly Father and refuse to repent, we go into full Adam and Eve mode. We're hiding, we're blame shifting, and that relationship suffers. And the scripture says that hinders our prayer. Psalm sixty-six eighteen says, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Remember the attributes of God, omniscient, all-knowing. Does he really become deaf? Can't hear you. I can't hear No. But it just says we should not expect a prayer to be effective. In fact, there's even teaching about that in our relationships. One example in 1 Peter 3, 7 says, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. We could do a whole sermon on what it means to live with your wife in an understanding way. That, but the point is, if we don't, our prayers can be hindered. So if we want effective prayers, what's the answer to that? Well, in this context, Jesus says, if you're holding on to bitterness, if you're refusing to forgive and instead hanging, holding on to bitterness, your prayer will not be effective. In the broader context, we see in 1 John 1 9, not just a sin of, of lack of forgiveness, but in 1 John 1 9 it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess before him and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, we have the perfect righteousness of Jesus credited to our account. Not that we've been made perfect, but when we are regularly confessing those sins before him, he sees the righteousness of Christ before us. And the Bible tells us when we are in that state, our prayers are effective. In James, it says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Where we are as far as confession affects our prayer, makes it effective. This is in the context, by the way, of when the sick are instructed to ask their elders for prayer. And so we as elders take this very seriously. We want our prayers for the body to be effective. And so we regularly seek to say, Lord, reveal any unclean thought in us. We want to be clean before you so that our prayers are effective. And when, we, when the sick have come, it's one of the great blessings to pray for the sick, we will, we'll go on to this passage, and so we'll say, because of this instruction, is there any unconfessed sin in your life? And some of them, a few times I can see they're sort of taken aback. I didn't expect that question when I came to ask for prayer. But we explain it to them. And sometimes it's a confession of, I'm doubting. I'm not persevering. I can be short-tempered. And so once that's confessed, we then pray for their physical and spiritual healing as well. We want our prayers to be effective. So how about you? Is there something on your prayer list you've been praying hard for? But you're aware there is an area of life where I am holding on to sin. I am refusing to repent. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about necessarily... A struggle where it's regular confession and repenting and then maybe stumbling and repenting. I'm talking about, I know what the scripture says. I am not doing that. I'm not forgiving that person. Not again. I'm not walking away from this habitual sin. It brings me too much pleasure. Our lack of obedience will not thwart the will of God. I'm not saying that. But we should not expect fruitful prayers if we are holding on to unconfessed sin in our lives. So we want our prayers to be effective. We need to repent and believe. So we're coming to the conclusion of our road trip. I know when our mission trips get back, they debrief what went well, what can they learn from and so, the last two weeks, we've seen Jesus and the disciples on these road trips back and forth. And so, what, what are our takeaways for us here at CFC? Well, last week, we talked about, just say it briefly, we don't want to be those fig trees that have leaves. We call ourselves Christians, but no fruit. There was a, there was a warning against that, that there could be correction and judgment from Jesus. Not eternal judgment as believers, but correction if we're not bearing fruit. But this week, the good news is when Peter sees that cursed tree, Jesus says, power that cursed that tree is going to be available to you and will be accessed through effective prayer. Remember. Remember that tree. Pretty soon they're going to remember the resurrection. Remember that and then trust God. Trust his purposes. Ask daily. Go before the throne of grace. Praying that his will be done. And then believing that he is going to respond and saying, God, use me. And we also want to regularly say, God, but I want to come before you with a clean heart. Think about it. Are you, praying, are, you, are you praying for your family members, lost ones, people you love? Do you want your prayers for them to be hindered by your own refusal to confess and repent? The men are going to come forward and we're going to, Take the elements of the Lord's Supper. And as you hold those pieces, I just let's, let's be reminded, was the word in our text today, let's be reminded of the sacrifice made by Christ. And because of that sacrifice, that same spirit that cursed that tree, rose Jesus from the dead, that can move a mountain, will live in us. And let's confess before him any sin that we have been holding on to. So as the men pass and Matt and Shirley play, just consider that and consider the words that Matt sings prayerfully and then I'll lead us in taking the elements. (laughs) so grateful for the gift of your son Lord we know that you have promised never to leave us never forsake us you are a promise keeper a truth teller because of that truth Lord we know that we have the power of the spirit within us we know that our sins are forgiven yet we do ask Lord that you would forgive us when we continue to fall short when we seek to elevate our will and our plan above yours when we seek to um, Hide in fear, because we don't want to go through the trial, even though it'll bring you glory. Forgive us, Lord, when we hang on to bitterness. So grateful you did not withhold your forgiveness for us. We love you, Lord, and we just thank you that the power of the Spirit lives within us now. Amen. Let's take together. You know, the truth that that, the spirit, the power that shriveled that tree is available to us. It's not a fable. It's not a Christian pep talk. It is a truth of scripture. We have 180 of our young people who are willing to go out there in that spirit make a difference today. Each of you uniquely is going to have an opportunity to display the power of the Holy Spirit in your lives this week. I pray that you do so, and I look forward to hearing about it. God bless. Have a good week.